Hello, and welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and I am so excited for today's episode because we are talking about Southeastern by singer-songwriter Jason Isbell. Ships in the We get an extra special treat in this episode because my guest today is Kevin Van Valkenburg. Kevin writes for ESPN and has become a great friend over the years. DJ and I went to Baltimore recently to see the Jason Isbell and Father John Misty concert at Meriwether Post Pavilion with Kevin and his girlfriend Tiffany. We had such a great time and he and I will talk a bit about that concert in today's episode. Kevin is the biggest Jason Isbell fan I know, and he knows a ton of stories and background that he shares with us as well. Kevin and Tiffany were kind enough to host us that weekend, and you know the second you walk in that Isbell's music rings throughout that entire household. Sometimes literally, it's spinning on the turntable that Tiffany got for him after she heard him talk about wanting one on the Sturgill Simpson podcast he did with me last year. But Isbell's music bounces off the walls figuratively too. Kevin's two young daughters know Isbell, and they know how much their dad loves it, so they love it too. The kindness and patience and togetherness in the Van Valkenburg home is Isbell's music. Molly introducing me to the neighborhood cat, Keegan showing me their colorful flowers out front, picking crabs on the back porch and drinking Natty Bows and Moscow Mules and laughing until late in the evening. That's real, and that's Isbell's music. You can feel the love in that home just like you can feel the love on Southeastern. I'm so excited Kevin could join me for this episode. My main sources today include Jason Isbell's 2018 interview on Austin City Limits, Rolling Stone, and the Drive-By Truckers documentary titled The Secret to a Happy Ending. I also loved his 2013 Fresh Air interview with Terry Gross and his interview on Mark Maron's WTF podcast. Also, one of my favorite music writers, Stephen Hyden, wrote a piece for Grantland titled The Most Gut-Wrenching Jason Isbell Songs, which is fantastic if you have a chance to read that. I haven't always known Jason Isbell's music. In fact, it wasn't until last year that I really even knew who he was. I had never listened to Drive-By Truckers, Isbell's former band. But his fourth studio album, Southeastern, was a definite turning point for me. I started listening to it a lot right before seeing that concert earlier this summer. I was really going there for Father John Misty, actually. And I've seen him before, but I hadn't seen Isbell. And as it happened, somewhat surprisingly, I enjoyed Isbell's half of the show a lot more than Misty's. I talked to Kevin about the concert a little bit and how he and I both feel a little bit of ownership and protectiveness over Isbell and Misty, respectively. That was my second time seeing Misty and the first time the venue was a lot smaller and mm-hmm. it it was a life-changing show. And yeah. I don't say that lightly. And I, I it, it made me so, so much a fan of Father John Misty when we saw him in Chicago. Seeing him at Meriwether Post Pavilion, I was happy to see him. I like listening to the songs and I love seeing him live, but there was an energy that Isbell had that Misty just didn't come with that night. And it was, it was a little bit disappointing, but you know, I'm always a fan and you never know what they have going on the, on on the outside. He's probably tired. He's road weary. Like I get it. Can't be on your game every single night of your life. (laughs) I still laugh when I think about him joking about uh, the 
the sexiness of the Rockville accent because he's from Rockville, Maryland and stuff. That was <laughs> sort of that made me laugh. He is. That's, that's exactly it. Like he, he really does like have such a wonderful sense of humor with his audience when it's that big of a, it's that big of a venue. It's, it's my struggle with like really, really wanting to do a podcast on somebody like Misty, but also like, I don't want anyone else to know about him because <laughs> I don't want the venues to get any bigger and I right. don't want him to get any bigger. And he's just kind of like, he's very niche still. And I, I yeah. like to keep it that way as long as I can, you know? I felt a little bit of that like pull with, with Jason because like so many, um, you know, I guess men of my age, I'm 41, they're super into Springsteen. Like that's kind of like the cliche and sort of like, sports writers are super into spring scene. And for me, it's never really like, I've just never connected like uh, totally with spring scene, especially like later stuff, you know, um, I just, it doesn't work for me. And so like Isabel was kind of that person to me, the way that like for some of my closest friends, like spring scene is to them. And I started a little bit with that idea of like, I really wanted success for him. And I was so excited when he won Grammys and I was so happy, um, you know, when he got to finally be acknowledged as like one of the best songwriters of this era. And I also had moments where I was like, Oh, like I, please don't get that much more popular. <laughs> right, because exactly. I don't really want like to lose the ability to like stand 20 feet from you at the nine thirty club in DC with all my friends, like while we're singing decoration day. About you, I'm feeling good, damn, I'm feeling so fine. Because Kevin is so much more well versed in Isbell's discography than I am, I had him make the call on which album we should do for this episode. We talked a little bit about why he chose Southeastern. There's so many kind of rich characters and personal things on this album. I mean, I I obviously, as you know, celebrate his entire catalog. So uh, there really are no like bad Jason Isbell um, albums, even the first couple solo ones where there's a bunch of kind of misses. Like there's a couple songs that really shine and stand out. And then so I kind of still have a warm spot for those. But this was kind of like a whole different evolution in who he was. Like, and I think he has admitted that in a bunch of different things that he was, it was finally like, I've, I made an album. I didn't just make, you know, some songs that I put on a record. And I think that that is a rare thing that you and I both can sort of, you know, love and appreciate because like the album seems to be kind of going away and kind of getting scarce a little bit where someone tells a, a you know, bunch of series of stories that are interconnected, almost like short stories. And, um, you know, I don't think it's a surprise that Isabel was a, um, I think a literature major at um, the University of Memphis and loved like Dennis Johnson and loved George Saunders and great short, some of the great short story writers of our time. And so that I think is a big part of why his characters could so, on each album could sort of all live in the same universe. Jason Isbell grew up in rural Alabama near Muscle Shoals, a well-known destination for some of the world's most famous recording artists and an epicenter of music history. Oh, 
The Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, also known as the Swampers, was a group of session players with their home base in Muscle Shoals. They were a little bit like the Alabama version of LA's Wrecking Crew and were involved in a number of very famous recordings by Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, Leonard Skinner, Bob Seger, the Staples Singers, and many more. They also conducted a secret 1969 session with the Rolling Stones where they recorded Brown Sugar, You Gotta Move, and Wild Horses in three days before the band headed to play their now infamous show at the Altamont Speedway. Basically, musicians of every genre would travel all the way to North Alabama just to play with the Swampers. And music permeated the town. It was just a part of life if you grew up in or around Muscle Shoals. But for Jason Isbell, it would become his life. Jason's parents were both teenagers when they had him, and divorced when he was young. He spent a lot of time over at his grandparents' farm down the road, as it was right next to his school. After school, he'd go down to the farm and his grandfather and uncle would teach him how to play a bunch of different instruments. He liked the mandolin a lot because, as a small kid, it was easier for him to hold. But year after year, as Jason went through grade school and high school, they'd always play music together at least once a week. Bluegrass, gospel, all different kinds. When he was in high school, Jason joined a few different garage and country bands with his friend Chris Tompkins, who is now a very successful songwriter in Nashville. As Jason got more into the music scene in Muscle Shoals, he began rubbing elbows with some of the town's musical elite, including the bassist for the Swampers, David Hood. He would go watch Hood and others perform around town, and being a pretty skilled guitarist himself by now, Jason would sometimes get the opportunity to sit in on their sets. In between, he worked at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals and attended the University of Memphis. Still today, he needs just one physical education credit to officially graduate. David Hood's son, Patterson Hood, had also grown up in Muscle Shoals, but was now over in Athens, Georgia, playing with Mike Cooley in their band, The Drive-By Truckers. After their guitarist didn't show up for a set at a house party one night, Isbell was there and, already knowing all the band's music because of his connection to Patterson's dad, offered to sit in. He killed it, and The Drive-By Truckers knew they had found the newest member of their band. Jason Isbell joined the hard-living Alabama natives in 2001 when he was just 22. Don't call what you're wearing an outfit. Don't ever say your car is broke. Don't worry about losing your accent. A southern man tells better jokes. Have fun, stay clear of the needle. Call home. Don't give it away Don't give it away About a year after joining the Drive-By Truckers, Jason married Shauna Tucker, who grew up a part of the Muscle Shoals music scene as well. She had contributed upright bass on the Drive-By Truckers album Decoration Day and had subsequently joined the band in 2004 after the departure of their bass player, Earl Hicks. Though a decade younger than founders Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley, Jason's impact in the drive-by truckers was immediate. He contributed multiple songs to their next three albums, Decoration Day, The Dirty South, and A Blessing and a Curse.
on the man's favorite son. He said, beat him real good, but don't dare let him die. And if you see Holland Hill run, well, I said, they ain't give us trouble before. And we ain't brought down on ourselves. But a chain on my back and my ear to the floor. And I'll send all the hill boys in. But by the fall of 2006, tensions within the band were growing. Isbell tells Rolling Stone it had gotten to the point where they just hated being around each other. And Jason's relationship with Shauna was becoming more and more contentious. By the end of 2006, Shauna filed for divorce. And by the spring of 2007, the truckers parted ways with Jason. It was made to seem like a harmonious split. Patterson Hood made this long statement on the band's MySpace that the whole thing was super amicable and everyone was in full support of Jason, who desired to go solo because of how many songs he was writing. But in a 2013 interview with the New York Times, Isbell confirms he was kicked out of the band, due in large part to his heavy drinking. He says he was drinking a fifth of Jack Daniels every day and, quote, loved cocaine. Patterson Hood had asked Jason to take some time off and get his life together, but Jason refused. He wasn't going to miss a show. Then Mike Cooley called Jason and basically told him, this isn't going to work for us. Heartbroken, Jason bought a motorcycle and left his home in Alabama. He tells Rolling Stone, quote, I drove down to Florida, back up through Georgia, and visited some of the girls I had met on the road. It's a wonder I didn't kill myself. I got home feeling and looking worse than when I'd left, just completely lost. I got green and I got blues And every day there's a little less difference between the two I belly up and disappear Well, I ain't really drowning cause I see the beach from here I could take a greyhound home When I got there it'd be gone Along with everything my home is made up of So I'll take two what you're having I'll take all of what you got To kill this goddamn lonely goddamn I was kind of aware of the truckers when Jason was in the band, but the first time I saw the truckers perform uh, was at a little venue in Baltimore and Towson, I guess in Towson, Maryland that no longer exists. And he had just recently been booted from the band. 
And my friend, my buddy Childs, who I worked with at the Baltimore Sun, was like, oh, I really wish you could have seen him with Isabel because he's kind of my, one of my favorite sort of aspects of the band. I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll check out his stuff later. I certainly love the Truckers still. Like, I've probably seen them almost as, maybe, probably maybe more times than Jason, just because they're a little bit easier to see and I have kind of more friends who are maybe interested in seeing them. But I'm sort of fully, I think, an Isbell fanboy in the sense of that, like, <laughs> he would be my number one. I love Mike Cooley. I love Patterson Hood. But in terms of, like, I just connect more with Jason's, I think, lyrics and his songs and stuff. And to me, they're they're more personal. They're more, they're like, he's just my dude. I feel like I've, I've followed his whole career. You know, like, he's, from the very first time this first solo album came out, I was like, oh, well, like, I like I love his songs with Truckers, so I'm going to buy this solo record, whether it's good or not, just to be supportive. And that's kind of like, I think it's almost like in sports when you follow somebody from like their rookie year to like their the end of their whole career, you feel mm-hmm. that much more invested in it. And so, um, you know, I there's some part of me that wishes that I had gotten into it just a little, you know, maybe six months sooner, so that I could have seen him perf- play with the Truckers because that would have been really cool. But um, you know, he still plays all the songs that he did uh, with the truckers. He still plays them all in his own solo show, which I'm, I'm sort of grateful for. Isbell released his first solo album, Sirens of the Ditch, in 2007. album involved a lot of folks from the drive-by truckers including patterson hood brad morgan on the drums and shauna tucker and david hood on bass patterson hood also helped him co-produce i suppose it must have been a pretty amicable split as this album came out just a few months after his departure from the truckers but it was on his next album where isbel really began to find his stride and his new band isbel's next full-length album jason isbel and the 400 unit released in 2009. The 400 Unit, still his band to this day, is made up primarily of musicians from Muscle Shoals. The group includes Jimbo Hart on bass, Derry DeBorgia, formerly of Sun Volt, on keyboard and accordion, Sadler Vaden on guitar, Chad Gamble on the drums, and Amanda Shires on fiddle. Everyone in the band also sings backup vocals. In his interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, Jason explained why they decided on the name The 400 Unit, inspired by a ward of a local mental hospital. It's, I, I know it sounds a little insensitive now, I guess, but they've changed the name of the place. I don't think that's their fault. I think they changed it anyway. But they they would take folks out, um, like their day patients, they would take them out once or twice a week and give them all 10 or 15 bucks and put a name tag on them. 
they would get out of a big white Ford van downtown in, in Florence, Alabama, and they would walk around and try to get lunch. And, uh, you know, it just scared the locals. The locals saw that van come. Everybody knew what it was. They got out, and they were looking really disheveled and disoriented. And, uh, you know, they would try to exist in reality as a normal person for an hour, how, however long it took to get a, a Subway sandwich or something. And um, we had been on the road for about a month, and we stopped somewhere, and we all got out of the van, and we were drinking pretty heavily and not getting a whole lot of sleep. And it was the middle of the day, and we were all hungover and, you know, smelled pretty bad and and tried to... I handed everybody 10 bucks because it was their per diem for the day, and we all went to get a sandwich. And I thought, man, that reminds me so much of, <laughs> <laughs> of something I've seen somewhere before. But I can't say the same it many times Somebody take me home Isabel's third studio album, and second with the 400 unit, titled Here We Rest, released in 2011. The song Alabama Pines was named Song of the Year at the 2012 Americana Music Awards. Kevin told me it was at this point that he saw his favorite Isabel show of all time, and where he noticed there might be something more going on between Jason and his fiddle player, Amanda. We were, one of the things we were asking him, talking a little bit about in preparation for this, was like, what's the best Isabel experience that you ever had? And weirdly for me, it's this, this, this little concert, probably the smallest venue that I think I've ever seen him play in. And it was at the, uh, the I believe, the Rock and Roll Hotel at, in Washington, D.C., which I'd never seen another show before or since. And it was right after um, Here We Rest came out. And so that's the album prior to Southeastern, which has like Alabama Pines and Codeine on it and a lot of really great songs. And he, Amanda, had just started touring with uh, him. Like I, it wasn't like maybe a permanent deal or whatever. And there was no, like, it was before he'd gotten sober. There was no, like, they weren't together as a couple, as far as anyone knew. And it was so intimate and so kind of cool. And the energy of it was so fun because it was just like, oh, man, like, here's this new album he's got. And, like, these songs are just awesome. But it was, like, just so great. And, and he and Amanda were, like, eyeing each other. And all of me and my friends were like, man, they are 100% like... If they're not hooking up, like they're going to be hooking up. <laughs> probably like three months later, they were sort of, you know, they had announced like, oh, that they were seeing each other. And literally maybe five years later, I got a chance to meet him and Amanda after a show in New York. And I kind of brought that up with Amanda. And I was like, you know, she was like, oh, no, no, I was not interested in him just yet. I was like, come on. And she was like, well, maybe a little. About five seconds after her heart begins to break That's one thing I can't take She should be home by now, but she
By 2012, Jason was still very much struggling with alcohol abuse and getting worse. He kept telling Amanda he was going to quit, going to quit, but then started saying he probably needed to go to rehab. She held him to it and had Jason's manager, Tracy Thomas, and tour mate, Ryan Adams, help her initiate an intervention for Jason. He entered a rehabilitation facility called Cumberland Heights in Nashville in 2012. He has been sober, and he and Amanda madly in love ever since. When Jason returned from rehab is when Southeastern was born. For this album, Isabel was initially going to have Ryan Adams produce it, but their production styles didn't mesh. Instead, Isbell turned to Dave Cobb, a well-known producer in Nashville whose list of collaborators includes Sturgill Simpson, Chris Stapleton, John Prine, Brandy Carlisle, and more. Cobb has produced every Isbell album ever since. On most of the songs, Cobb encouraged Jason to do his vocals in just one take. The title, Southeastern, doesn't actually come from the region of the United States, but instead from a tool and dye shop his dad used to work at called Southeastern. Isbell tells the LA Times, quote, He came home with terrible stories. I thought of the place as a dungeon, so I wanted to reclaim that for my own purposes, end quote. As you listen to nearly every song on Southeastern, you feel like you're a fly on the wall watching a relationship play out in its most intimate moments. And you'd feel really lucky to be led into that. It's like seeing strangers get engaged. You don't know them, but the genuineness of the moment stays with you for the rest of the day. This is how Isbell writes. We may not really know him personally, or his relationship, or even the painful moments. But he lets us in in such a way that we take ownership over the responsibility we've just been granted. As Isbell says in the Truckers documentary, his songs aren't his anymore when they're done. At that point, they belong to everyone. With that, let's get into the 12 tracks on Southeastern and more of my discussion with KBV. First up, the opening song, Cover Me Up. Hard on the run, keeps a hand on the gun. You can't trust anyone. I was so sure what I needed was more. Tried to shoot out the sun. Days when we Somebody knew I was meant for someone So girl, leave your boots by the bed We ain't leaving this room Someone needs medical help Or the magnolia Cover me up and know you're enough to use me for good. This is one of the like best love songs written of the last 25 years, or, or for me, like it's 
maybe my favorite love song ever. It's just so beautiful. There's so many like wonderful turns of phrase in it. Every night when Jason sings it, he sort of talks about how he sings it uh, to Amanda, whether she's there or not. And they, I think I've heard them tell an interview about like he, you know, he, he went to rehab, he came out and at her behest, like she was the whole reason he went and he sort of came out and was like, Hey, I want to play something for you. And she was like, Oh, okay. Okay. And, you know, imagine like someone sitting down with a, an acoustic guitar and playing this song for you. I, I, there's a, the line that there that it sort of always gets me is like the days when we raged, we flew off the page, such damage was done, but I made it through cause somebody knew I was meant for someone. And I think that that line it has personal resonance for me, but it has, it has to like, it's got to resonate with almost anybody who was in like a relationship that didn't work out. And then they found some, someone who sort of did work out for them. And like the idea that like, as cheesy as it might be, like that there's something, there's happiness waiting for you at the end of something, or, you know, that you're able to sort of celebrate that. And every time, you know, he performs it in concert and, you know, and says, and I, um, but I sobered up forever this time. Uh, I swore I sobered up, swore off that stuff forever this time. Like the whole crowd, sort of cheers. Oh, I got chills when that happened at our show. Roar, and it's almost like sort of like a prayer that he's throwing out, and people are throwing back to him. Like, you know, we gotcha. Like we're we're in this with you too. And on his, you know, he has like two tattoos, like one on one arm and one on the other. One of them is like lyrics from Bob Dylan's boots, Spanish leather. And the other one is just like little notch marks for every year of sobriety that he's Mm -hmm. had. And uh, I think he's up to seven now. And so I just think it's like every time I see it, it's just like a wonderful kind of ode to the idea of like, I am, you know, I'm trying every day. Like I'm, I'm swearing off this stuff because I know there was a better life for me. And that life was with, uh, with you, Amanda. Put your faith to the test when I tore off your dress in Richmond on high. I sobered up, I swore off that stuff forever this time. The old lovers say I thought it'd be me who helped him get home. Home was a dream, one I'd never seen till you came along. The last show that he ever played before he got sober was in Richmond, and he was just like, all right, I know I'm going to rehab, so I'm just going to get absolutely like hammered and she i think i remember reading this interview was like boy like i don't know like uh, this is it's this is really a test like he's awful right now and i'm not sure Mm -hmm. i want to be with this person and i think he went into rehab not knowing if when he came out of it that they would be together and and so it was like i was kind of scared to well you're gonna lose everything unless you get your shit together Breaks open wide and the river runs 
this house on the stones like a piece of driftwood cover me up and know you're And the man's fiddle too is like incredible on it. I mean, that's um, a big part of it. Is it's like she doesn't sing on it, but there's a sort of a duet in the sense of you know his guitar and and her uh, fiddle are sort of you know intertwined throughout it, and it's it's really it's wonderful in the sense of you know um, we're not leaving this room till like the magnolias bloom, like till spring comes. Like it's hard to write sexy lyrics without seeming like cheesy or like someone would make fun of you. And I'm pretty sure like he did it. And we'll get into this a little bit too, but the idea of her as an anchor for him, like is kind of resonant throughout the whole album too, which I think he mentions in the next song, which is Stockholm. So cover me up and know you're enough to use me for good. Cover me up and know you're enough to use me for good. lucky anchor socks have you heard of this <laughs> i have not heard of this <laughs> so he has a pair of socks that have i mean they're just like half calf length socks that are in uh -huh. blue and they have a white they each have a white anchor on them and he says he wore those three times at his wedding at the <laughs> ama awards and at the birth of their daughter wow Once wise man ways of the world Now I've traded those lessons for faith in a girl Across the ocean A thousand years from my home In this frozen old city of silver and stone Ships in the This is a song, like, this is, like, the first single that he put out on this album. 
And so for a while, it was the only song that was like available, you know, for like a, three weeks or something. And I think I probably listened to it like 500 times. Like it's just, <laughs> it's just such a kind of, I think, beautiful song and like uplifting song. And it's not Amanda singing in the harmonies. It's, a, it's Kim Ritchie, who's like a alt-country singer. But it's really just the, the harmonies are so beautiful. And I love the line about once a wise man to the ways of the world. Now I've traded those lessons for faith in a girl. And it's just like, yeah, yeah. Like I, I was like wise to the world. And I, I think that's another obviously theme throughout this album was like, I used to, I used to do some shit. And now like I traded all that for sort of like faith in someone who, um, who loves you back. It's a lot of good metaphors in here about, you know, the, the folks who've, who've, surely called off the search and gone back to their own. I love that line. Yeah, like, I mean, I think you can read that a lot of different ways, and I've always sort of read it like the people who were sort of worried about me and, and sort of constantly trying to help me find my way or whatever, like, they see how in love I am, and I think that the, then they've sort of called off the search for me because they, like, think that I'm okay, and they've gone back to their own uh, in the way that I've sort of, you know, found my own anchor. But, you know, I could... Someone else could read that totally different. That's just the way that it's always connected with me. In the night, so long, I used to pray for the daylight to come. Folks back home surely have called off the search and gone back to their own. Part of, I mean, I'm naturally sort of, I don't know if cheesy is the right word, but I, you know, believe in like this, my sister always teases me, like symbols crashing and like big love and sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, Jason's, um, all of his songs before are about love. They're a little bit, um, there's like a sadness to them, whether it's, I mean, you should listen to Cigarettes and Wine off of uh, one of his first albums or streetlights or goddamn only love is about like his marriage to shauna tucker falling apart this was the first time that i remember listening to a song that was like wow that's like really kind of hopeful like it's a different side of him like that's kind of beautiful and i'm as much as i love like the sometimes like cynical and like wise ass and maybe you know um keep people at arm's length kind of view of love and songs like I also really like it when it's really earnest, too, um, because that's how I am. Mountains rough this time of year Close the highway down They don't want 
I've been fighting second gear Fifteen miles or so Trying to beat the angry snow And I know every town worth passing through What good does no one do No one to show it to And I've grown tired of traveling alone Tired of traveling alone I've grown tired of traveling alone Won't you ride with me I've grown tired I think the, the cool thing about when I was talking about like short stories is so you know cover me up is like the idea of and it doesn't necessarily have to be about him and Amanda even though it is like this couple that sort of found one another and like you know he got she got him sober and it's okay and like and in Stockholm like they're in love and like he's sort of celebrating it to the world you know it's less intimate it's more of like a shouting out from the rooftops and then it's like we almost go back in time before like cover me up would occur and it's like the process of getting there to falling in love so you have the the narrator of the song kind of realizing like you know what shit it sucks to be alone it sucks to always like basically like floating around from town to town and being so drunk that like prostitutes won't take your money and you know just <laughs> stumbling uh you know stumbling through the street and and so it's like you get to see it from different um, different chapters in it, uh, like out of order almost. And that's what I think is wonderful. And not, you know, there's different songs on this album that, you know, aren't obviously about uh, him and Amanda that are just maybe about different characters that he kind of wanted to explore with like Elephant, um, you know, or Super 8 or whatever. But this to me, like, could very much be the prequel to Cover Me Up, where it's like, I, you know, I, I was driving all through the south and driving down to Ybor City in Florida and realizing like god I really love you and I want to be with you and so how do I make that happen Don't you The New York Times profiled uh, Jason like I th um, they're sort of really one of their really good book critics, Dwight Garner, who must also be like a music fan. Um, he wrote a, a thing about Jason Wright as this album was coming out, and he sort of talked about like Amanda comes down in one scene and like curls up on the couch with him while he's being interviewed, and then she gets up and leaves or whatever. And he Jason says to Garner, uh, "I used to think that only stupid people could love each other this much."
You said, and you're better than your past. Winked at me and drained your glass. Cross legged on a bar stool like nobody sits anymore. She said, and you're taking me home. But I knew she planned to sleep alone. I'd carry her to bed sweep up the hair from her home If I'd fucked her before she got sick I'd never hear the end of it She don't have the spirit for that now We just drink our drinks and laugh out loud Bitch about the This song to me is like one of the great short stories ever. It's I think it's like 297 words long. Uh, I used this in a class that I taught at the University of Montana to talk about um, details and how if you're going to tell a story, how much details matter and the the picking the right kind of details. There's just so many vivid images in this. Uh, this is all f from everything I've ever read. Jason just kind of made this up and just sort of came to him, you know, from having spent a lot of times in bars of like, what if I wrote a sort of a song about these two people who are friends, maybe they could have been lovers, but never were. And she's struggling with cancer and he's kind of there for her, not in like a romantic way, but in a sort of very intimate way. And they're kind of figuring out the, the end of things and what that means. And so, you know, that could come off like there's so what we were talking about before. There's so many like treacly bad cancer songs and like live, live your best day or whatever. And for some people that's sort of really a, inspiring. And for some people it's really a bullshit kind of experience. Like it isn't real because that isn't how a lot of people end up dealing with it or going when they have cancer. And so how, how do you sort of write a song with that that doesn't come across as like really dark or really cheesy? And you do it by just kind of drawing these two incredibly real life characters. And so one of the things I'd sort of talked about with my students when I talked about it was like, think about how he describes this woman. You know, she sits cross-legged on a bar stool like nobody sits, sits anymore. You know, she has sharecropper eyes, which, you know, and she drinks... Seagram's, not whiskey, but Seagram's out of a coffee cup. And she sort of, you know, she's, when she's drunk, she makes cancer jokes. So she's like facing like her own death with humor. And, you know, she, I sing her country songs and she gets high and sing along and she, her voice doesn't quite sort of work anymore. And we both kind of smoke a little weed and we try to ignore like the big thing in the room that's like, yep, like she's not going to make it. And so there's so many wonderful little details in this that I sort of like, if you're going to tell stories, you're going to make them stick with people. You have to be observant enough to find the kind of details that make someone remember them forever. She said, and you crack me up, Seagram's in a coffee cup. 
Sharecropper eyes and the hair almost all gone She was drunk, she made cancer jokes Made up her own doctor's notes Surrounded by her family, I saw that she was dying alone I'd sing her a classic country song She'd get high and sing along She don't have a voice to sing with man. We burn these joints in effigy Cry about what we used to be Try to ignore the elephant somehow Somehow I was inconsolable when he played this at the concert that might have been the moment that i became like ultimate isbel disciple and i was <laughs> i was listening to i was listening to southeastern at the coffee shop the other day and mm -hmm. elephant came on and i had my headphones in and i was like okay i can do this keep it playing <laughs> i was like playing chicken with the song it's like i can do this i can listen to the song at the coffee shop without crying and yeah. i I lost. I lost the contest. Like I had to skip yeah. the song. It it just gets to me. It's it's just yeah. so 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 powerful. You know, when we talk about like real moments and like risking something too, like there's a line the line in here that I think most people remember is one thing that's real clear to me is no one dies with dignity. And that goes against like every sort of hallmark sentiment that, you know, or or movie sentiment that you were sort of trained to love is that oh, you know, like you're 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 a fighter for cancer like you you're gonna beat this fight and you're gonna you know it's like the harsh shitty reality of it is like that when you a lot of people get it like they they die like on you know gasping for breath and like miserable and shitty and like mm -hmm. so there's something real about addressing that like you know the idea that we're all gonna sort of die and maybe that's what's gonna happen with this and that he's sort of trying to give her a little dignity by just sort of being there for her. And it's really kind of risky in the sense that it's like, this was never going to be like a radio hit. Like no one's going to be like, Oh my God, I, I can't wait to hear elephant. I'm going to call the radio station. <laughs> request. It doesn't, it doesn't deserve, like the radio doesn't deserve this song. No, though. it doesn't. <laughs> I buried her a thousand times Giving up my place but I don't give a damn about that now There's one thing that's real clear to me No one dies with dignity You just try to ignore the elephant somehow You just try to Just try to ignore the elephant somehow, somehow, somehow. In that short, you know, in less than 300 words, like, you feel like you really kind of can see and in a little way know both of these characters a little bit, like just... You know, you kind of 
you, you get a sense of what kind of person Andy is that like, he's been trying to hook up with her. Like he's tucking her into bed. He's sort of quietly sweeping up her hair. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's singing her song so that, you know, she can sing along with him. He's joking with, you know, her, she kind of fakes her own doctor's notes and, and smokes marijuana or whatever. It's like all of that, you get a sense of like the two of them without, you know, ever even knowing her name. And, uh, it's just, it's really, really good. It's really good. I'm just going to maintain a pretty significant lump in my throat for, for probably the rest of our conversation. Yeah. Uh, so if I cry, just keep going. <laughs> totally okay. So it's good podcasting right there. I know. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, let's talk about the next song, which kind of blasts us into just a big electric major chord moment mm-hmm. after the end of Elephant. Uh, flying over water. From the sky we look so organized and brave. Walls that make up barricades and graves. Daddy's little empire built by hands and built by slaves. From the sky we look so organized and In the heat I saw you rising from the dirt Drunken tears and tugging at your skirt You know, it's interesting. This probably isn't one of my um, favorite songs on the album. I always love it, well, I guess like it a lot when I hear it in concert. And I was listening to it a little bit more sort of in preparation for this podcast and trying to really sort of turn over some of the lyrics I think and the one that I, I guess I've always come back to is like that I like a lot is the from the sky the highway as straight as it could be the string pulled tight from home to Tennessee and still somehow those ditches took a better part of me from the sky the highway as straight as it could be like the idea of like the path for him from North Alabama to Nashville could have been like a straight arrow could have been like he could have been really successful right away could have you know not had all this drug problems and alcohol problems and he sort of banged around uh, you know being a drunk and being i think he would say pretty overweight and being just living kind of a hard crazy life with a broken marriage or whatever the perspective of like being in an airplane and like trying to figure out like whoa like what have i been through i do appreciate that even though this isn't like one of the songs that I queue up if I want to just listen to a couple songs from this album. Take my hand, baby, we're over land. I know flying over water makes you cry. Been in the sky so long, seems like the basically why he could never be like a mainstream artist is like saying daddy's little empire built by slaves you know from the sky we look so ordinary and brave like kind of you know sort of saying like the southern culture that we come from is sort of fucked up right like you know we have all this really like crazy history that's pretty dark and here we are able to sort of like take a look from it from above like metaphorically when you step back and you're like holy shit this we came from some pretty dark uh, dark roots in a lot of ways. 
Pictures of the runaways on the wall. Seems like these days you couldn't run away at all. And even if you did, what you got to run away to? Just another drunk daddy with a white man's point of view. I can see you in my mind's eye catching light. Sleep beside the river if we make it out of town tonight. You can strip in Portland from the day you turn 16. You got one thing to sell, men's old as a pea. Ten years ago, I might have seen you dancing in a different light and offered up my help in different ways. But those were different days. different days. One of the things that he really wanted to do was he liked, he really liked the word benzodiazepine. There's a, a bigger kind of like message to it too, which is that, you know, he said more people are addicted to legal drugs than illegal drugs. Like there's so much like actual um, like pill addiction out here. And so I kind of want, he kind of wanted to sort of uh, touch on that. And so I think that was like one of the ways that sort of the kernel that kind of formed uh this song this is another one of the songs that for me like is beautiful but um it isn't one that i am like drop dead in love with uh, i think the nice thing for me is that when i talk to like other isbel fans like some for some people this this song or flying over water is like oh that's in my top five and i'm like yeah mm. that doesn't that isn't quite that way for me but i'm super uh grateful that it resonates for you because you know, it means that different, he's appealing to different people with different things. The song makes me think a lot about DJ because I always like to think about what it would have been like to know him a lot earlier in our lives and for him to know me a lot earlier. Yeah. And we met, I mean, we met fairly young, but Mm -hmm. still even before then, even in the, in the months before I met him or the years before I met him, we were just different. We were really different people. Yeah. Like, we both had made good decisions and bad decisions in life. You know, I think about even if we had gone to high school together, like, would you have asked me to prom? Like yeah. I was, he, he was like a football player and a golfer and I was an <laughs> unapologetic theater nerd. Like would we have ever crossed paths, you know? Yeah. And would we have lasted? If we had gotten together at any other point in our lives, what would that story have looked like compared to what mm-hmm. we have now? And I think listening to this song reminds me about that. Because I don't think it matters. I, I don't think it matters. Right. And, and you found each other exactly when you were supposed to. 
I have had the similar kind of conversation with my girlfriend recently. It was like she, you know, was like absolutely like I was a nerd. You would have never been <laughs> me back when we were in college in twenties and stuff. And so you're right. Like you meet people at certain times in your life and you connect with them and you know, whether that's fate or whether it's luck or whatever, like they just happen to be the right person for you at that right time. And that's, I, I love that idea. And the story's only mine to live and die with And the answer's only mine to come across But the ghosts that I got scared and I got high with Look a little lost Ten years ago I might thought I didn't have the right to say the thing that outlaw wouldn't say But those were different days Those were different days Those were different move on to the second half of Southeastern with the next song, Live Oak, which begins with an incredible acapella moment that makes me drop whatever I'm doing and just listen. There's a man who walks beside me is who I used to be And I wonder if she sees him and confuses him with me And I wonder who she's pining for all nights I'm not around could it be the man who did the things I'm living now? I was rougher than the timber shipping out of Fond du Lac When I headed south at 17, the sheriff on my back I'd never held a lover in my arms or in my gaze So I found another victim every couple But the night I fell in love with her, This song to me, like, it's obviously about, um, like, what was some of what we just talked about, like, your, the sins of your past, and, um, you know, he wrote it in the sense of, like, you know, I used to be this, like, hard-drinking, like, awful person, and I had to kind of grow up, and I wondered, were people going to like me still? Like, the, the old version of me that they liked, were they going to like this new version of me? And instead of like writing that in a sort of a straightforward kind of way, wrote this like short story about like this guy, you know, in civil war kind of era times where they're, you know, like logging towns and stuff and goes around like robbing people and shooting them and stuff. And uh, the, there's the line at the end about he may or may not like shoot his girlfriend and like bury her so deep in the touch the water table line. But you could also read that like he needed to like, get rid of that relationship and bury someone so deep that like wouldn't sort of come back and kind of like haunt him and, and needed to sort of move on. So it's like a, it's a really great exercise in writing, I think from him. And for me, it always makes me my, one of my good friends who's a writer, Tommy Tomlinson, he wrote a book. It's called the elephant in the room. And it's about basically being like almost 500 pounds. And he lost like 120 pounds uh, because he felt like if I don't, lose its weight, I'm going to die. And 
this song really like resonates with him and he used it in within the book to sort of talk about like there's a man who walks beside me and he's used who I used to be and I and the idea of like you know I've been fat my whole life and if I lose some weight like are people still gonna like love me am I gonna become a new person or like mm-hmm. will the sort of the two versions of me exist uh at the same time and so I think that's sort of a a really fascinating sentiment um, because this song didn't immediately like connect with me. I was like, Oh, that's kind of a cool, like, you know, short stories, but it didn't write. I was like, I'm not quite sure what it means. And then when Tommy sort of put it in such personal terms and I thought about it more, I was like, Oh, like this song is just as much about Jason as any, like it's him sort of using this short story to tell like, you know, some of his own anxieties about what people will think of him now that he's changed. the water table line and picked up what I needed and I headed south again to myself I wonder would I ever find another friend there's a man who walks beside her he is who I used to be and I wonder if she sees him and confuses him Next up is Songs That She Sang in the Shower, which is my personal favorite song on the album. This is by far my absolute favorite song on this album. All right. Yes. Favorite music, favorite lyrics. I absolutely love it. This is one of my favorite like opening lines to a song ever and the imagery that it does. Um, It says, on a lark, on a whim, I said, there's two kinds of men in this world and you're neither of them. And and so he's like he gets punched for like cracking wise or something. And is basically like his girlfriend's like, "You're a train wreck, and I'm so sick of being with you. Like, and I don't want to be with you anymore." And so he's holding a stake against his eye, watching her say goodbye, and thinking about, "Oh man, like all I'm gonna remember is like her singing in the shower." I said there's two kinds of men in this world and you're neither of them And his fist cut the smoke I had an eighth of a second to wonder if he got the joke And in the car headed home Asked if I had considered the prospect of living alone with a stay held in my eye. I had to summon the confidence needed to hear her goodbye. And another brief chapter without any answer. 
answers blew by And the songs that she sang in the shower are stuck in my head Like bring out your dead Breakfast in I'm stuck on my own. I'm stuck on my own. I wanted to see if you knew. So, okay, let's talk about all the songs that she sings in the shower. Okay. I was so, just going to ask you your thoughts on that, so I'm glad you segued into yeah. it. <laughs> so, I know that Breakfast in Bed is a song by Dusty Springfield. Yes. I know Wish You Were Here is Pink Floyd. Yes. Yesterday's Wine is a Willie Nelson song. Correct. But I have no idea what Bring Out the Dead is from. Do you? Yeah, I don't. And I was actually just a couple of days ago, like trying to figure that out as I was thinking about the song. I, I, for some reason, I thought like, oh, this must be like a Rolling Stone song I never heard, or like a, you know, Will and Jennings song or something. And it's like there's no obvious answer as to what it is. And I, a little bit of me wondered maybe if he came up with the line, the songs that she sang are stuck in my head and he just wanted like a, like a, another song to kind of fit with that rhyme, like bring out your dead and breakfast in bed. And so he almost kind of like made up a song that wasn't necessarily like something that was, <laughs> because the other ones are so clear. Like I, right. you know, I remember listening to yesterday's wine a lot from, from some of my parents' friends who were super into Willie Nelson and, and breakfast in bed. People know Seth Springfield wish you were here, obviously. But that one's like so far out of left field. You know, it, it's possible that like this song is about his ex-wife, Shauna, who was certainly a country, is a country singer and stuff. And so she would have been the kind of person who would sing like Dusty Springfield or, or sing Willie Nelson and stuff. And so I wonder like, oh, was this like a, a band that she liked that was there's an actual. But th that's also like, I think, being a little bit too literal about. Uh, stuff like that just because certain things are inspired by someone mm -hmm. doesn't mean like every single detail has to be literal and so I, a big part of me just thinks like probably that fit in there was a good sort of lyric and it was like ah that song doesn't necessarily have to be like 100 percent real or maybe it is by this group or, or whatever or so. maybe she's just a really big grateful dead fan and she's not singing <laughs> a song she's just telling him hey bring out a dead record <laughs> or maybe she liked monty python uh holy grail oh, yeah. and <laughs> Into that, He's and like, bring out your dead. It was an inside joke. Is bring out your dead? <laughs> not dead yet. That might be it. Maybe she's a Maybe. <laughs> bring out your dead. Here's one. Ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. Regulation. One thing I wanted to say, and we're going to get a little like musical technical here for a second, okay. because I, I like wanted to cry when I figured this out. It felt mm -hmm. it's so good. He uses double drop D tuning. Okay. So the top and bottom strings are usually tuned to E in standard tuning, but he'll drop them both to D. Okay. And this is a beautiful, beautiful tuning. Um, I was playing this on the guitar earlier. And it 
I mean, any, literally, like, even if you don't put your fingers on any of the strings, it sounds beautiful. So you really can't go wrong in this, in this tuning. Awesome. Uh, the chord progression, I noticed, it feels so rewarding. It's, uh-huh. it goes, I think it's like D to A minor to E minor. There is like a, a, a major, and it's even like suspended. So there's a, it's a major chord, but there's a little dissonance to it and then minor chords. And then it resolves again to the major chord. Anyway, it sounds a lot, a lot like Pink Floyd's Goodbye Blue Sky. And I was, and, and Goodbye Blue Sky is on the wall. It's not on Wish You Were Here, but okay. I, it makes me wonder if he's a, like, secretly a really big Pink Floyd fan, or maybe not so secretly. I think he's such a like widely versed musical sort of person that, um, you know, I've seen him talk about how much he like likes Kendrick Lamar and, you know, seen him certainly talk about John Prine and like all these different things. And he loves, you know, I think all, all different kinds of little Easter eggs and stuff that, uh, you know, could sort of that. So that may very well be intentional. The next song on Southeastern is New South Wales, based on a tour he took with friend and fellow musician Justin Towns Earl to Australia. Well, former friend. Here's Kevin. They had like a falling out and aren't friends anymore, uh, in part because Justin Towns Earl like got together with a roadie on Jason's like band and then broke up with her and wanted Jason to fire the this roadie. And Jason's like, yeah, I'm not going to fire her because you had a bad breakup with her. And Justin Towns Earl was like, screw you. And Jason's like, okay, well, I guess that's good. Like, <laughs> mm. So it sort of shows like what a stand-up guy uh, Jason is. Uh, that he wouldn't just fire someone because his buddy was like broke up with her anyway um so it's very much based on this real tour that they went on where they were kind of like young and stupid and like using all kinds of drugs and and drinking really shitty uh liquor and basically being a little bit sort of spiritually lost thousand miles from both our mothers barely old enough to rust here we sit Tending both our hearts are anchor Taking candy from these strangers midst of diesel and the dust And here we sit Singing words nobody taught us Drinking fire and spitting sawdust Trying to teach ourselves to breathe We haven't yet Every chorus brings us closer Every flyer and every poster Gives a piece of what we need And the sand that they call cocaine Costs you twice as much as gold You'd be better off to drink your coffee black But I swear the land It'll listen to the stories that we told God bless the busted boat that brings us back. God bless the busted boat that brings us back. There's like sort of a really melodic and beautiful line. Um, you know, the idea that like, hey, how am I going to make it back like intact? And, um, you know, what's going to be the thing that brings me back? And it, there's a little bit of a connection that to the, the tattoo that I referenced earlier that's on his arm, which is a, a line from 
Bob Dylan's Boots of Spanish Leather, which says, just carry me, carry yourself back to me unspoiled from across that lonesome ocean. And I think NPR asked him, like, well, what does that mean to you? And he said, for me, when I read those words, it has to do with travel and keeping something about yourself intact, not letting those pieces get pulled away as you make your way around the world. But I swear we've never seen a better place to sit and think. God bless the busted ship that brings us back. Basically, this is like a combination of, I think, like four or five, like real life different things. One of the funniest things that I've ever read and also maybe one of the most horrifying things is this thing he did for GQ, which was like about, I think it was like they talked to like eight different artists about um, who are recovering alcoholics and like Steven Tyler was one and like Ben Harper was one and uh, I think maybe Trey Anastasio was another and like, so it was like a lot of different perspectives of people who used to do like a lot of serious art drugs and i won't ruin it for you because it's almost too gross to tell on this podcast but he tells a story about basically a saint bernard like running off with his underwear in sweden when their trucker had like a show there and he got drunk and threw his clothes out the window and it's like one of the most horrifying like funny things i've ever read <laughs> lost a couple drinks in my dinner in the sink and i woke up with the bed still made was a quiet morning, I was a quiet breathing, my heart way up in my throat. Girl starts screaming, and the maid starts screaming, and it looks like it's all she wrote. Well, they slap me back to life, and they telephone my wife, and they fill me full of Pedialyte. So my guts and my glory, it would make a great story. So I have a brief rant that I have to make here about this probably like six months ago or a year, like Vox wrote a piece about how the rapper Young Thug was the first person to talk about drinking Pedialyte to cure hangovers. 
and how like all these other artists had picked it up. And it enraged me because Isabel was writing about drinking Pedialyte <laughs> in Super 8 like two full years before Young Thug was talking about it. But I guess like Jason Isabel wasn't like cool enough for Vox to like plug into. I wanted to like storm the offices in Brooklyn or Flatbush and be like, Jason Isabel was the first person to be such a hungover drunk that he had to drink Pedialyte, which is what you give to babies when they are like dehydrated. So I think what one of the things that I remember hearing a lot when he got sober is people were like, oh, is he, is he going to be like not a, as good of a songwriter when he got sober? People throw that at Ryan Adams all the time. You know, you, you were better when you were on heroin or whatever. And, it, you know, if, if you're someone who's trying to stay sober, it's sort of thing that kind of enrages you. And, and I think Jason has always like been kind of proof that that's stupid sentiment, that you're when you're that much sharper, if you're a writer you're going to write better stuff. And so there's so many like funny real life things. You can still write about like hard partying and stuff when you're not hard partying. The second to last song on Southeastern is Yvette, a tale about a boy who is walking past a school friend's house one night and witnesses her being sexually abused by her father from a window in their house. Horrified, he goes back home to grab his gun. Isbell says that while this story isn't autobiographical, it's reflective of something he didn't realize until he was an adult, the staggering percentage of people who are sexually abused as children. He says he wrote this song as a means for people who are still healing from this abuse, who might not feel they can start the conversation themselves, but still want something to relate to. The song is as gorgeous as it is completely frightening. A little light from the house on the cold side bedroom upstairs. It's a family affair. I've watched you in class. You can't imagine, like, again, like a song ever occurring on the radio where someone was writing about sexual abuse in a way that was, you know, honest and raw. And I, I've given credit in this sense, too, of like, he didn't try to write this stuff from like a woman's perspective or whatever. It's like the kid who's across the street or across the way who's like thinking, like, I'm going to, I'm going to murder your dad uh, if I can get up the courage to do this because he's not going to mess with you anymore and that's 
that's kind of dark too. Like I, you know, it's not written like it's a hero thing. It's written like it's kind of a revenge sort of, or like a, I don't know, rescuing kind of thing more than being a hero. Side in my skull, and I hope against hope. I hope against hope. But she doesn't know about it. Like he sings yeah. it, he sings the whole song to her, but you know she doesn't hear what he says to her. She doesn't know that he writes this song. She doesn't know that he has all these thoughts in his head. He, she just knows him as, as a friend and he sees himself as the only person in her life that can protect her at this point. And the only way that he knows how is to go home and grab his rifle. What I think makes this song so powerful, just elevates it to another level for me is two things. First off, I love how the song ends before he pulls the trigger. Mm -hmm. You don't know if he does it or not. You kind of assume that he does, but it's it has to be implied. I also absolutely love how the entire song he sings so steadily. You can never hear the rage, but you can absolutely feel it. It's interesting to hear him talk sometimes about, he said, you know, one of the things he said a couple times is, oh, I don't like it when people assume that like I'm the main character and everything. But he kind of, I think, wants it both ways sometimes with that because like, you know, Cover Me Up is very much about him and Amanda, and he's very sort of upfront and clear about that. And like Outfit is very much about real advice that his dad gave to him. And um, If We Were Vampires is about him and Amanda. So like there are times when he's very like upfront about like, yeah, like this is very much like I'm the character in that song. And so I think it's easy to confuse it or, or at least I guess not confuse it, but interpret it as like, oh man, like did you, is this you too? Like are you, you also the character in this song and mm -hmm. I, you know like any writer he wants to be able to explore different kinds of characters as you know the narrator using the word i doesn't necessarily mean i jason isbell but it like it's easy to sort of i think that's what makes him such a good writer is that you can like it seems real because the details are so vivid and real that you're like oh my gosh this has to be like real right window the light may you see so I'm hold you that way he won't hold you that way anymore even. earlier about the organized religion and sort of the skepticism 
uh, and there's such a good the second sort of um, verse about is your brother on a church kick seems like a different kind of dope sick better off to teach a dog a card trick and have a point make it clear and like that's someone who has Jason's grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher and sort of grew up obviously with a lot of religious people around him and stuff I don't know exactly how he feels about you know God or whatever but I do know that like he's pretty skeptical of like organized religion and pretty frustrated with sometimes and so like that idea of like it's better off to teach a dog a card trick than to have a point and make it clear to them like trying to argue with someone who is just going to say well like yep nope it's in the bible you know like right. that, i think that uh, frustration rings pretty clear and it's it's a it's a song about perspective too You're like you know you ought to know that like on a global scale like we've had it pretty easy like we're you know we might be poor we might have like frustrations and disappointments and stuff but like you know overall like we have it it's good and yet we still have like there's still like real life struggles there's still people who are hooked on clonopin which is a, a drug that's prescribed for you know anxiety and depression and, and I mean, I, my favorite verse in the whole thing is the one that he's talking about his friend and, and he says uh, um, remember him when he was still a proud man a vandal smile a baseball in his right hand nothing but blue sky in his eye like there's a lot of I think if you ever lost somebody to drugs or anything like you don't really remember them when they were at their worst near the end mm -hmm. you sort of like to think of them in like the moments when they were seemed youthful and like didn't have all that kind of awfulness in their life and so that's there's some the power of memory in that watch that lucky man to work kind of feels like the punchline to the whole thing and it, it is you know it covers some serious topics but he's basically like so yeah I just spent a ton of songs singing about being drunk and high and disappointing everybody around me but like when you step outside of yourself it's like when I step outside of myself and my selfishness it's actually not that bad <laughs> like compared to what's going on in the world um, which I don't know if that I, for some people that provides more context and it makes them feel better for some people it doesn't help but at least from his perspective it it, it gives us um, it just kind of rounds the album out in such a beautiful way yeah it's I mean it's hopeful too you know it's like I think there's some sadness in it obviously is sort of remembering like friend who died or people who were sort of broken by the world and stuff and he's kind of trying to ask himself to you know step back and be like you know what like i've i also still like have it okay like i i need to kind of keep that perspective Southeastern is such a stunning album in every way. When you find songwriting like this, a real feeling, you just want to hang on to it. This album blows me away the more I listen to it. I think I feel right now how Bruce Springsteen fans feel all the time. I'm more running alongside the Springsteen train at the moment, just about to hop on I think, but there are so many similarities between him and Isbell. 
There's also nothing phony or pandering about Isbell's music. His wounds are still fresh, for God's sake. He thought he would drink until he died. And this album marks his freedom from that. What an honor to be able to see inside the mind of someone at this turning point in their lives. Jason and Amanda were married in 2013, two days after recording finished for Southeastern. They gave birth to a daughter, Mercy Rose Isbell, in 2015. The same year Mercy was born, Isbell released his follow-up to Southeastern, Something More Than Free. The album won him his first two Grammy Awards, Best Americana Album and Best American Roots Song for 24 Frames. You thought God was an architect Now you know He's something like a pipe bomb Ready to blow And everything you built It's all for show Goes up in flames In 24 frames down with something more than free you will sort of start to see like there's connections to this album on that album um but at the same time those songs fit together too and he's exploring different kind of things like about being married and being a father and what it means to grow up in the south and wonder like can you rise above your past uh because there's not a lot of this is about like Southern identity on Southeastern, but that is a, certainly a part of who Jason is and the questions he's asks. And he, he gets back to some of that on something more than free and the national sound, which is kind of a cool thing to explore too, because we're all a little bit um, like a, one of my favorite lines ever to open a book is in the Prince of Tides by Pat Conroy. It says, my wound is geography. Uh, and it says, it's also my anchorage, my port of call. It's like, that's true of everyone. I think it's like, we're, we're all kind of shaped by where we come from. And yet it also kind of grounds us to like, oh, that, that's always going to be home. No matter how long you live in Florida, or how long I live in Maryland, like we're always going to have some connection to home. And that's a lot of what he explores in the next couple albums. In 2017, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit released The Nashville Sound, which won him two more Grammy Awards for Best Americana Album and Best American Roots Song for If We Were Vampires. Knowing that this can't go on forever Likely one of us will have to spend some days alone Maybe we'll get 40 years together But one day I'll be gone One day you'll be gone If we were vampires and death was a joke We'd go out on the sidewalk and smoke Laugh at all the lovers in, in 2017, Isbell became the youngest ever artist in residence at the Country Music Hall of Fame, joining the ranks of artists including Earl Scruggs, Chris Christofferson, Buddy Miller, Roseanne Cash, Alan Jackson, Miranda Lambert, and more. According to the Country Music Hall of Fame, its annual residency was established in 2003 with the goal of honoring musical masters who have contributed a large and significant body of work to the canon of popular music. 2018 was another huge year for Jason Isbell. He made a guest appearance on the LP The Tree of Forgiveness by one of his major influences, John Prine, and has shared the stage with Prine and Amanda Shires multiple times. Yeah. 
only a part. Last year, he was also tasked with creating a song for Bradley Cooper's character Jackson Maine in the film A Star is Born. It only took Isbell a couple of days to write Maybe It's Time. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Takes a lot to change, man. Hell, it takes a lot to try. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. I'm so excited to see what's next for Jason Isbell. It's so rewarding to root for him and Amanda Shires, who incidentally just started a new group called The High Women that you should definitely check out. You just want to see two people like that stay together forever. I love when they share updates on social about Mercy Rose, too. She's the absolute cutest and a happy kid. Isbell's music is just something I feel like I can always return back to. There's a comfort in his genuineness and the positive outlook he has now that in earlier days he didn't think would ever be possible. They say things don't get much better than this, but for Jason Isbell, I think they might. Thank you so much for joining me this week, and extra thanks to Kevin for being my guest. Next week, we're talking about something really annoying that happens to us all, when a song gets stuck in your head. I'm going to dive into why that happens, if there's a pattern of which songs are earworms and which aren't, and if there's anything we can do to get them out of our heads other than a new annoying song coming right back in again. Have a great week, and I'll see you back here next Tuesday.